0: These two girls, uh, women, I should say, make Brad sound a lot better, don't they? Huh? Where's uh, Ryan and Ellie? Where are you guys? We we sung that song just for you. <laughs> Inside joke. We can talk about it later. Um, welcome to your Bible church. If I haven't met you, um, my I got a hair in my mouth. Must not one of mine. Must be my wife. <laughs> Um, if I haven't met you, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. I get to teach and preach God's word each week, and um, we're in the book of Jonah. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Jonah. If you don't have a Bible this morning and you want to follow along, uh, just raise your hand. One of the ushers will hand you a Bible. I think it's on uh, Jonah's around page 770 something in those Bibles, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, you can take one. In fact, uh, share with you some some neat little praises as we kind of dive in. Um, we I've I uh, purposely have, have had the goal to be in Jonah for our summer series. And so uh, somebody this morning actually came, came uh, to me, the, uh, the, the first service, and said, said, Oh man, you know, we came here, we, were so, we loved Jonah chapter uh, 3 so much. We came here because we can't wait to hear what you do with Jonah chapter 4. And I laughed and I said, Well, we're still in Jonah 3. And uh, she said she said afterwards, she said it was worth coming to, um, which is good. But uh, the messages have had, um, our, for our church, our family here, uh, had quite an impact on people. In fact, one of the things that's become really apparent is many of you are becoming more and more comfortable almost each uh, and every week with inviting people to come to church who don't know Jesus and to hear this great message of the gospel. In fact, <clears throat> we had a gal here this morning that... Uh, uh, someone in the church has been inviting for several weeks. That person called them last night. Said, "I'm coming to church." She she came to church with her boyfriend and, and a kid here this morning. Um, first time ever. She she's uh, uh, in her 30s, late 30s. First time ever she's ever stepped into a church. First time ever. And uh, not only did she come to church for the first time ever, but as I mentioned, we handed out the Bibles. She took a Bible home with her, and so that's pretty amazing. Yeah. And um, and then there have been stories, of, uh, I've had people contacting me, uh, I told Allie I need to start turning my phone off around 9 o'clock on Sunday nights when you are done putting your kids to bed, because you all text me right around 9, 9 p.m. And, um, and uh, people have been texting me all these messages of, of just things that God's doing in, in, their, um, in their family's life and for them individually. Uh, one gentleman, in fact, uh, shared with a friend in the church, um, hey, I I... I Hear that message of repentance. What's God? What God is doing? And I'm I'm gonna I'm not gonna drink anymore. It's Kind of a well-known guy around town who who drinks quite a bit. And he said I'm not I'm not drinking anymore. I'm done. And um, which is pretty amazing. Hearing people just turning away from their sin and and running to the Lord and just feeling God's call in their life. Many of you have shared that you are Jonah and you're getting the message. You are Jonah. So welcome to the family. And um and so it's it's been really kind of neat to be a part of from my position. I, I could share with you many, many other stories, uh, but for the sake of you know keeping your guys' personal lives private between me and my 9 p.m. text messages, uh, and some of you are wondering, wait a minute, who has his cell phone number and how can I get it? And i um, <clears throat> trying to hide it a little bit more, be discretionary with that thing. I told Brad the other day, I said, I don't know who's giving out my cell phone, but you need to stop. <clears throat> so as I said, we're gonna be in Jonah 3, Um, And we're picking up again, uh, the title of the message is Repentance is Life, Part 2. Martin Luther, the great uh, reformer, said repentance is life, and it is life. And just as we were in Chapter 2 for a few weeks, where Jonah prays and calls out to God, I think there's enough here in Chapter 3 for us to stick around with this idea of repentance. And that repentance should not be a a word that's lost amongst us as Christians. It shouldn't be something that, that we don't talk about and something that we avoid. In fact, repentance is is not just turning away from sin, it's turning back into God's grace. So we define repentance as turning from from anything that, that God does not desire, anything that is ungodly. Or another way to put it, which is a little bit more palatable for, for some who are new in their faith, is it's turning away from anything that's self-destructive or that would hurt society or hurt yourself, that would bring anxiety in your life or depression in your life, and then turning to anything that's can, turning back to God, which is turning back into peace, back into joy, back into real relationship with God. And so since it's so important, I, I, I saw there's enough material here to keep talking about why, important, why repentance is important, why we as Christians should continually be um, in the active process of repenting. I don't know if you're anything like me, and I'm assuming that you are because you're a human being, and that you, you have sin in your life, and you have issues and struggles in your life, you have things about your own personality that you don't like. Unless you're in complete denial, then you're a complete narcissist, and that's a whole nother, like issue. Um, and I will take a 9 p.m. text message for that, too. So um, there are things, as, as I have grown in my faith, uh, in fact, I would say the more I've grown in my faith, the more aware, sometimes painfully aware, I have become to the ways that I fall short uh, of God's great glory. And and that's just a a fancy way of saying, uh, right, that that I don't do friendship as well as I'd like. And I don't do husbanding, uh, if that's a a verb, we'll make it a verb, uh, as well as I like. And I don't parent as well as as I would like. I fall short in those areas. And, And you can see that in your friendships, in your relationships, in your job, where you know you could just do a better job. Some of you probably know how toxic it feels to just lose your temper and to get angry, even if it's someone cutting you off on the road or what have you, or being on hold with AT&T for way too long, and, and you can see what I dealt with this week. Um, they changed my plan this week without asking me and charged me more money, which is just ridiculous. I don't know. I told them, that's how you get sued, and uh, I have no power to do that, but I'm telling you, <laughs> this someone's going to sue you. And um, anyways, so, uh, you know, it doesn't feel good to get angry and bitter. And so it's turning towards those things. Um, And so, again, we are going to be in chapter 3. Remember, now, if you haven't been with us, at this point in the story, Jonah has heard the word of God as a prophet who was ordained and trained by God to sit in God's presence, to hear God's voice, and then to proclaim that good news to God's people. That was his whole job. I mean, just a, a very a beautiful thing, a great opportunity to be in the service of God and to hear from him directly that you would then proclaim that good news that, that whole families and the whole nation of Israel would would be transformed by whatever it was that came out of a prophet's mouth. And here we see that Jonah actually doesn't want to have anything to do with this particular message, this word that God has given him to go to the great city of Nineveh that is a very evil city, a bloody uh, a bloody city, the Bible teaches us. Uh, That it was just a a hard, hard, hard people. And Jonah doesn't want to take the message of God's salvation to Nineveh. So he runs. And upon running from God, God sends a great storm, a great fish, swallows Jonah, takes him down to the great depths of the sea. All in all, that we learn that there is no running from God. And that is something else that I've heard from many of you, that you've not only felt that in your own life, but you're feeling it now. That in, in your actions, that that the world will tell you to live a certain way. The world will tell you to run towards something that is unhealthy, and you'll taste it, and sin always tastes really, really good when you first take a bite, doesn't it? It does. And and when you partake in it, you see nothing wrong with it. And then when culture is proclaiming and suppressing the truth that you should continue in that sin, uh, you know that it, it tastes good only for a season. And, and you know that when you're diving into that area of sin, or driving yourself away from the presence of God, God does everything he can in his power, in his sovereignty, to draw you back into the loving hands of God. And what's, what's a, such a special thing for me to know is that that reality allows us to do evangelism well. Because we can share the goodness of God with people and know that it's God who's in charge of bringing people to himself. That there is no running from God. If God wants you saved, you'll be saved. And I think everything in the Bible shows us that. Uh, One of the greatest stories I think that proves that is uh, Paul, who's on the Damascus Road. He's been oppressing Christianity. He's been murdering Christians. Jesus himself shows up on the Damascus Road, tells him, you've been persecuting my people. What do you think that you're doing? Paul falls to his knees, calls him Lord turns his entire life repents from his old life and turns to a greater life and is then used by Jesus Christ himself to proclaim the message to gentiles and Jews alike. So, Jonah runs from God and then he calls out to God in chapter 2 after being swallowed by the whale. He sings to the Lord, if you will, these psalms, and he's echoing much of the psalms that that we, if you remember in the study, we looked back and saw how similar many of the psalms are to the language that Jonah uses in chapter 2. Upon praying to God, returning to God, Jonah then is spit out onto dry land, verse 10, chapter 2, and then Jonah then finally, after the word of God comes a second time, he then goes to Nineveh. So if you would, this morning, we have a tradition, uh, to honor God's word and to make sure that you're awake at this point in the message, um, to stand during the reading of God's word, to honor it. So if you're able, please stand. And we will read from Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it the message that I tell you. Now in verse 3, instead of in chapter 1, verse 3, instead of a but, there's a so. So Jonah arose. He went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called out for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published, through, published it through Nineveh. By decree of the kings and nobles, by the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And now, Lord, we once again, we come hopefully with a mindset that what we have just read is holy. It's your spoken word. It's you speaking not only to the those of old Lord, but also to us today, you have a word from yourself from your own mouth, a word of encouragement, a word of rebuke, a word of reconciliation, a word of grace. We ask that that word would be a, a balm to us where needed, that it would thrust us to change where necessary, that it would empower us to accomplish the task that you have set before us. We ask also above all things that we would know that you are with us this morning, that you are present, that you You and you alone are the center of our attention. Give us eyes and ears to hear from you now, Lord. Push away the distractions and give us yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Point one this morning is repentance requires a process of moving from death to life. In fact, one author has said that Jonah Jonah shows us the picture that salvation is of one Hebrew from one Hebrew sinner to produce the salvation of many. One Hebrew for the salvation of many. In this case, a Hebrew sinner in Jonah, one Hebrew sinner in Jonah for the whole salvation of 120,000 persons. Bare minimum, 120,000. That one man would move from a Death to life process. In the same way we see this is true of Jesus Christ. One perfect Hebrew, one perfect man, one perfect man dying for the salvation, not of just Israelites, but for Gentiles. This was what we can call, what Ferguson calls, Sinclair Ferguson calls, uh, the Jonah principle. He goes on to say this, God intends to bring life, out of death. We may well think think of this as the principle behind all evangelism. Indeed, we may even call it the Jonah principle, as Jesus has seemed to have done. It is out of Christ's weaknesses that the sufficiency of his saving power will be born. So fruitful evangelism is the result of a death-producing principle. It is when we come to share spiritually and on occasionally in Christ's death, that his power is demonstrated in our weakness, and others are drawn to him. This is exactly what is happening to Jonah. If you remember, Jonah has gone to the depths of Sheol, he cries. Some commentators have said that it's quite possible, and they believe that this is the case, that Jonah literally died and was literally resurrected from the dead. Jesus himself uses such language when he says, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. Jonah, nonetheless, comes to an end of himself. He has a particular way of living life. In fact, that way happens to be a racist view, a prejudiced view. I won't take my message to the Ninevites. After praying, after this death-to-life experience, Jonah declares at the end of chapter 2 that he will give the vows that he has promised to pay and that salvation and salvation alone belongs to who? The Lord. He's confessing a new way of life. Repentance is important for us as Christians because we need to understand that we constantly need a resurrected experience almost every single day. You have the first initial from life to death when you're saved, for sure. That doesn't need to happen over and over again. Nonetheless, there are times in your life where you recognize that you are uh, diving too, too far into sin, diving too far into something that is unhealthy, and then you realize that that has to be put to death so something can come to life. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, I think, words this the way that really brings it across for us. Put to death anything in you that is earthly, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. God's wrath is coming because of these things. Colossians 3, 7 goes on to read, And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed, and the knowledge and the image of its creator. Verse 12 then goes on to say, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has complaint against another, what are you to do? Forgive each other. How? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these things, brothers, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. See, Colossians gives us the language that is necessary to understand that if you're to move from one addiction, that addiction must be murdered and then brought to a new kind of affection, a new kind of addiction. Right, the Bible doesn't say strip yourself naked and remain that way. No, you need clothing. One way exhibits, as Jesus said, the father of this world, Satan. It's the way that the world desires you to live, the way that the world pushes you to to live a certain life that indeed does not bring the peace of God. Have you ever noticed how much anxiety there is in this culture? Do you yourself struggle with it? Everything in our culture that has been produced by that great father, Satan, Indeed, pushes to us that kind of anxiety. I don't, I don't know if you know this or not, but Facebook was not created for your peace. <laughs> nor was Instagram, nor was Twitter, and neither was any other social media platform that exists out there. All that does is you compare, you contrast, you look, you produce a, a particular kind of image, or you're promoting something. Look at me, look at what we're doing, look at what's going on. It produces anxiety. Can I ask a question to you this morning? How much peace do you have in your heart? How tranquil are you? My wife and I, we, we've been trying to get out more with the kids because, you know, that's healthy. And uh, we had this conversation. So, okay, w- what are we going to do on Saturday? And, and I said, well, let's go to the beach. And, and so uh, we decided, well, maybe we'll go to Donner. So I texted a friend in the church who's got a house in Donner and said, hey, what's going on? They informed me of what was happening at Donner yesterday and today. Big event. Okay, we're not doing that. So we went to Prosser. We we're the only ones out of Prosser, drove down to Prosser, a little, little area right there by the dam. You know, there's rocks out there that the kids can throw at each other, and because and, uh, who needs sand, right? And it was good, it was a good time. And yet, I still find myself in those moments being somebody who's an accomplisher, a, a task oriented, goal oriented person, having a hard time sitting down, enjoying the lake, and enjoying the mountains without feeling like I have, I've got something, I've got to do something. Are you like that? You can't relax. You can't kick back. You can't enjoy the mountains and the creation that God has given us because you've got to do something. There's a goal to be done. There's a, a task to, to be accomplished. In fact, my wife will say, take the kids outside. I'll take the kids outside, and next thing you know, I'm, I'm hanging out with them, and then I'm mowing the lawn because, well, the grass needs to be mowed. Anxiety. The reality of these things is that the things that the, the culture teaches you don't lead to Peace. And so Christ comes and shows us a better way, a way that is the for, for the best of the flourishing of humanity. Do you want peace? Do you want reconciliation? Do you want to know who God is? Turn from these things. Murder these other things. Don't have anything to do with them any longer. It's a radical turning of lifestyle. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. One gentleman came to me, uh, Today, after service, and he said, man, I really appreciate that image you made of putting something to death and then buying into something that is life-giving. And he said, I've been trying to quit for several years. 20 years I've been trying to quit smoking. For 20 years. And he said, I'll I'll go a year. I'll go a year. And I've done this before on multiple occasions. I'll go a year. and, And then inevitably what happens is I'm driving away from the store and I've got a pack of cigarettes in the car and I don't even remember buying them. But now that I bought them, might as well and the process goes on you understand what i'm saying is that 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 sometimes when we put something to death we have to understand it has to completely die there's no partial partaking any longer for those of you who struggle with alcohol, you know you, you can't have just one or two drinks. You've got to have six. You have a problem, and so you can't say to yourself, well, I'll, just, uh, I'll, I'll change my lifestyle, I'll repent as the pastor has shared, and, and I'll put to death the other four, but I'll keep the other two. When reality, you have two, and you know you'll have three, and then four, and then five. It has to be completely eradicated. It has to be put to death. But what God says is not only do we put it to death, you don't just leave it there, you now turn to something that is better, and Christ is the better. Jonah has been brought down into the belly of the whale. He sees a new life, and now he is radically being obedient to God. And God tells him, preach the message, what? That I tell you. Now take note of something that happened in Nineveh. This is point two of the message, that not only will repentance be a death-to-life experience, but when you are going to come to a place of repentance, you have to understand that prior to even putting something to death and then to life, you're going to come to an awareness of your sin. Do you know what I mean? The illuminating effect. If you remember last week, We shared the primary message of last week is uh, that that repentance is primarily brought on with being confronted by the Word of God. Chapter 1, verse 1, the Word of the Lord came. There's a confrontation. God comes with His Word, and His Word inevitably disagrees with you. Does it not? In fact, if you're reading it and you agree with everything, you probably are reading it wrong. And as you know, as I've said before, if you're reading it and you disagree with it, It's because you are wrong. God's word stands true, it confronts you, and then you become aware of something you were never aware of. Again, to quote Ferguson, or Keller, or J.I. Packer. These are all good quotes I didn't use for you. Oh, you know why? Because we're going to sing songs again. Let's go to the... I'm just doing a dance. Hey, I didn't put this in the slides. Let me read it to you. Well, man, I am an educated person. To quote Ferguson again, Ferguson says, The citizens of Nineveh woke up one morning assuming that all was more or less the same as it always had been. They did not have the spiritual awareness to sense the cloud of divine judgment was stretched across the city already. The God of this world had blinded their minds, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. They were unconcerned because they had mistaken interpretation of their situation. Suddenly, through Jonah's words, they found a floodlight shining into their hearts with an alarming power. They no longer stood at the human bar of human justice. They could not think about this little prophet merely in natural terms. They saw divine judgment over their heads, and they began to cry out to God for mercy. A total reversal took place in their thinking. Instead of complacency and indifference, their hearts were stirred to pray. God be merciful to me, a sinner. See, the the point that I'm drawing out from Ferguson is one day the Ninevites were not aware of God, not aware of God's judgment. The next Jonah comes and speaks. Now they are painfully aware of their sin. This is what happens sometimes on Sundays. It's why some people don't come to church on a Sunday lest they become illuminated to an inadequacy that exists within their life, and then the God of the heavens declare that that lifestyle should change in them. The Bible says that the world, at its most radical sense, suppresses the truth. They'll hide it. They'll keep it away. I remember at 21 years old, I was dating a girl and a friend in the church that I'd known for many years. I've shared this story a few years ago, but that friend came to me and, and very, very politically correct asked me, Are you sleeping with her? And I said, yes. Because at 21 years old, you know, my logic at that time, though I knew who God was, my logic was she's good looking and I love her because she's good looking. Therefore, it's okay. And so she just just looked at me and she said, do you know that the Bible calls that fornication? And I went, that's a dirty word. That is not what I'm doing. I'm not fornicating. And she said, you know what you need to do? You need to go home and you need to study the word fornication. Just study it. Just for yourself, go home. That was basically all she did. And so as the Bible student I was, wanting to understand what God wanted, I went went back to my little apartment in Reno, Nevada, right outside Meadowood Mall, opened up my Bible, began to study the great word of fornication and realized I'm sinning. The light had been turned on in the room. After that moment, as the light had been turned on, there was no going back to that particular lifestyle with her. I tried. I tried to suppress it. I tried to continue the activity in my own sin to pretend as if God had never spoken it, God had never said it, but God wouldn't let it go. It ruined the relationship. I am so upset at you for exposing me to the truth. That was my feeling. Your truth ruined my happiness. When we know and understand that God, God isn't trying to ruin our happiness, God is trying to bring us the peace, as Colossians says, that Christ has in his hands. See, God comes, he's created you, and thus he's created you. He says, there is a particular kind of way that you are to live life. This is how you're built. To live outside of this box will bring not only the wrath of God, but displeasure and displeasure to you and anyone else around you. You will not be fun to be around. In fact, it wasn't long after that that someone in my family said, you're not the same Jesse that we've known and loved. It was upon hearing those words that I wasn't myself, I was in essence becoming less and less human, that I had to go to San Diego to go to a school of ministry to get my life right with God. The light had been turned on. The word of God illuminated my mind and my heart that this was not a healthy way to live. In like manner, the light is on in the city of Nineveh. Nineveh has been exposed to their great sin. It has brought an awareness to them that is uncomfortable. If the slides are back up, there we go. We'll get back on track here. J.I. Packer says, Repentance means turning from as much of you, as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And so our knowledge grows at these three points. So our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. Do you understand what he's saying? <laughs> he's, saying he's saying, you don't know everything. He's, what he's saying is, is, you'll have so much knowledge of your sin. You'll take that little knowledge that you have of your sin in that particular moment. You'll give as much of that knowledge back over to what you know of God in that moment. So that the enlargement of your worship is increased. And the process, my friends, is that inevitably, as God brings awareness to a particular sin in your life, he's only brought you to an awareness that you can handle in that moment, at that month, at that time. Are you with me? Which means when you repent of it, you're still not done repenting of it because it will be six months, two years, four years later where God says, oh yeah, let me show you a little bit more how deep that sin is in you. And you go, I thought I knew it already. Are you with me this morning? Anybody? 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 See, this should be good news to you. It should not be crushing to you. Some of you may look at this and say, wait a minute, Jesse, there's some things that you've stated. There's some things in Jonah that are uncomfortable. For instance, in in Colossians, you said if, if you turn and put those things to death, that if you don't turn, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God. Also, in Jonah's case, he's Letting them know that God is willing to wipe out an entire city? Do you know the focus should not be on the wrath and the focus should not be on the destruction? The focus is on the grace of God. The focus is, is the reason God is saying that in 40 days I'll overturn it, is he's still telling them, he's still saying to the Ninevites, there's an opportunity for you to repent, there's an opportunity for you to come back to God. I'm giving you time, I'm gracious, I'm loving. There comes this awareness, an awareness of repentance. This this should not crush you or bring you to a place of depression because it's an opportunity, friends, for you and I to go back to the grace and the goodness and the compassionate art of God. See, he he says to the Ninevites, I'm going to give you 40 days. Now, this isn't to be read literally for you and I. Well, now Jesse has illuminated to me my particular sin. I now have 40 days. (sighs) Or God's going to strike me dead it's July 22nd if I got my math right I'll be dead August whatever it's not literal it's the understanding that God is giving you an opportunity to come back to him and he'll continue to give you an opportunity until he doesn't in like manner if you remember in Acts chapter 2 Paul brings awareness to the people That it was the people themselves that murdered Jesus, the sin of the people, not just the Roman soldiers. In like occurrence when Paul is commissioned by Jesus, when Jesus appears to him, there is one message that Jesus tells Paul to do, deliver to the message of the people that I am sending you, bring them from darkness to light, the understanding of the forgiveness of their sins, illuminate to them who I am. My friends, what we need when God's word comes is for God to illuminate in our hearts the issues that exist within us. Our prayer should be, God, show me where I am selfish. Show me where I am self-centered. Tim Keller has a tremendous book that we have in the bookstore uh, uh, on uh, idol worship. Does anyone remember the title? Help me out. Uh, What is it? Counterfeit Gods. Yeah, Counterfeit Gods. And... um, The whole message is just going through your life and understanding the ways that you need to return and run to Him. But here's the thing about awareness. It isn't always fun, is it? I mean, those of you who are married, is it very enjoyable when your wife or your husband says, you know this is a weakness you have? First of all, men, I would encourage you never to word it that way. Don't do it. As my father used to say, Jesse, you only need to learn a couple words in marriage. Two, really. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. Sometimes I've found not to even say anything. Just nod. Until you find out that nodding is to the wrong thing. And then, there you go. I'm lingering too long here. It brings fear there's this great quote, I think, of Keller that kind of picks this idea of, of, of having it being illuminated to you. When it's illuminated, Keller says, you then have to admit, when you repent, you're ultimately admitting that you're not good. If you're a Christian and you understand the gospel, repentance is like starting to breathe again. Repentance is like getting back to your roots and saying, oh, that's the reason why I have a relationship with God. Not my performance, his performance. Not my promises, His promise. Not my past, his past. Not my record, his record. A person who understands the gospel is a person who repents quickly, repents joyfully, repents immediately, and repents constantly. It's an ongoing effort. And it should bring a fear and understanding of God that God is holy and that you need a new lifestyle, but then it should also bring, this awareness of of sin should bring a level of mourning to your heart. This is point three. Real repentance is always as notorious as the sin that preceded it. Real repentance is always as notorious as the sin that preceded it. The city of Nineveh, the great city, was a murderous, disastrous city, an evil city. And their repentance was just as loud as their sin. They mourned. Verse 6, chapter 3. It says that the word reached the king, that word reached, literally means it touched him, it moved him. His heart was engaged with the message. What's even more interesting about this particular word reached is its past tense. The way that it's written is that Jonah has written it in a narrative style that, that actually the, the, the king got the message first, and then the king had the people declare the fast, and then we read that earlier in chapter 3, and then the people responded. Here's something really beautiful. As it touched his heart, it's believed by some theologians that Jonah's message was a summary that we read here, but that, in fact, that that God used Jonah to go to the king first and Jonah shared his testimony with the king. Great king of Nineveh, let me share with you my story. I heard God's word. I heard it a second time. The first time, I ran. God sent a great sea, a great storm, swallowed me up in that ocean, swallowed me down to a whale. For three days and three nights, he gave me an opportunity to return to him. I cried out to him. Here's Jonah, quite possibly, if some have said, we, we are elaborating on this, we don't know for sure, his skin bleached, his hair looking a little funny. Jonah, quite possibly, the smelling of gastric acids, was not the most attractive guy to look at. It was apparent something had happened to this man. As he shares with the king, God gave me three days and three nights to repent of my sin, you get 40, what are you going to do? The king heard it, and he mourned. It reached his heart. He had a discovery of that sin in his life. As Spurgeon says, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. So he does a few things to show how radical the people's repentance should be. The thing that they declare, the city declares, the nobles declare, the king declares, a fast. No eating food, no drinking water. For how long? 40 days. That's how long they have. Jonah goes outside the city. He waits till day 41 because he hopes in chapter 4 that the city will explode. It doesn't. And Jonah gets mad at God. We'll see that soon. But the king declares for 40 days a fast. I don't know, just ask the question, when was the last time you fasted? Apparently for me, it's been a little while. When was the last time you said because of God you wouldn't fast? A friend of mine told me the other day, he was in the gym, he said, I'm on day two of a water fast. I was, you're not drinking water? for? That's what I heard, I thought, you're not drinking water for two days? That's not healthy, dude. Don't do that, you're gonna die, it's really hot. And he said, no, 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 I'm just only drinking water. And I thought to myself, you know, because he comes to church, I thought, well, is this a spiritual thing? I said, well, why are you fasting? And, and, and he said, well, to rejuvenate the system. If I tell you fast for two days, fast for three days, it'll rejuvenate the system. You will even lose five pounds. Many of you might sign up for that. But to mourn, to wail, how about for 40 days? Will you do that? I don't know that you would. I know people who have. Fasting is a voluntary, a voluntarily, opening yourself up to emptying yourself to show your body your real physical hunger and need can come from God alone. Every time you hear a, feel a, a hunger pain, you hear your tummy rumble, it's declaring your need for God. It's to remind you of your need for God. But notice something, the king declares the fast, right? It's one thing to declare the fast for the people. He also declares the fast for who else? All the animals. Now, I am pretty darn sure if many of you in this room didn't eat for 40 days, you would complain. What do you think it sounded like from those animals on day five? Day six? Day seven? Remember what the king said? Let everyone cry out mightily for God. Even creation is crying out for the return of God. And in this moment, could you imagine what it would have sounded like in a huge, large city of of animals and people? What kind of sounds were coming from Nineveh? What kind of moo does the cow make after 15 days of not eating? How about a lamb? The city, if you walked into Nineveh, it would have been filled with people gaunt. Surely their eyes sucked in from not drinking any water. Animals gloating. People crying out to God in prayer. It would have been a spectacle. Somewhat comical to us, but nonetheless... A very real position of the people emptying themselves out to show that they're really in need of God. In fact, in verse 6, you see the king takes off his robe, he gets off his throne, and he sits in ashes. What is he doing? As one pastor says, he's divesting himself of all of his own glory. He's getting rid of him himself. He's understanding that his life is no longer about what he wants and what the people want. It's about what God wants. And then they all take upon themselves sackcloth. Now, this might sound like the latest fashion statement. It surely is not. Sackcloth is made from a cheap, very itchy goat's hair. It is uncomfortable. It is not something you would want to sleep in. It is not a blanket that you would want to lie in. It is to remind oneself, as was the tradition of the pain and the, the, the uncomfortableness that sin brings into your life. The people, if you will, in their true heart are really mourning over what they've done. There's, there's no false pretense here. Cry out mightily to God. Don't be repetitive in your words is another way to say it. Don't just pretend to pray. Just don't ask God, but cry out for mercy. Some of you, because I know you've shared it with me, you're, you're wanting God to change your life. You're wanting to repent of your sin. You're wanting to get rid of your addiction. You're wanting to get rid of the attitude. What is the response you should have? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and cry out for his mercy. For anyone who declares mercy from God gets mercy. There is no crying out for mercy and getting wrath. There's crying out to God in hopes that he will turn from his wrath. And as he does here in chapter 3, he truly relents. My friends, we have to claim God's grace as our own. Understanding that repentance, repentance, let's be clear on something, repentance does not bring belief. Belief comes, and then repentance is a response to true belief. Repentance is a response to truly believing in God. And when you repent, you come to him truthfully honestly, willfully, and you declare, God, I am unholy. Remove yourself off of the throne of your own heart. Take off the robes of self-justification and sit in ashes and be humble. Does this not remind you again of our Lord and Savior? Himself having the robe of a rabbi takes off the pretense of that robe, does the unthinkable in that culture And he puts around himself the cloth of a slave. He bends down and he washes every single one of his disciples' feet, including Judas. And then he tells us the illustration. I do this as an example for you to follow in. Do you know that real Christianity is found not on a throne, but down on your knees? Do you want to change your culture? Do you want to change your family? Do you want to change your own heart? Here's one way to do it. Serve. Lower yourself. Abase yourself. It's the opposite of everything that culture is telling you, is it not? It is the complete opposite of the selfie. Look at me. I know that's a popular thing to do. I have taken several selfies. Just confession. I've posted two, maybe, out of like 100. I can't do it. Not because I'm super humble, but it just feels weird. Look at me looking at me. (laughs) I don't understand. But it's all the rave, you know. I heard heard even of a church, kid you not, in their foyer putting in a selfie booth. Because that'll reach people for Jesus. Our church has a selfie booth. We don't have a selfie booth. We have a children's ministry that needs people to serve those kids. We have a nursery. We have a wanna. We have youth group. We have a coffee shop that you can come and sit with people and read good literature about God, the God of heaven and the God of earth. It isn't about you. It's never going to be about you. It's about you humbling yourself in right relationship with God. Do you want the peace of God that surpasses all understanding? Humble yourself. Come to a place of real repentance. The real Christian's more comfortable in ashes than they are on a throne. For me, it's, I, I feel God has called me to preach. He's called me to be up front, but this is not a very comfortable place for me to be. In all honesty, it isn't. You can ask my wife. She knows. I like to be by myself. What's your best day look like? You know, sitting around by myself. Well, you want anyone to hang out with? Nah, I'm good. <laughs> Introvert. But people matter to God. They do. That's why I continue to serve. It doesn't mean it's always easy. It doesn't mean that it's, it's always the best thing to do. But it's the right thing to do. And it does bring peace. Peace. My friends, there's no better place to be but in the presence of God, being obedient to God. Jonah lost his peace in the belly of the whale because he ran from God's presence and he ran from the service of God. As you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ, it's really, really simple. There's only a few things that God's really going to get you to do. One, God is going to give you a heart to sit with him, to talk with him, to pray with him to be with him, to hear from him, just to get a message from God. You're going to ache for it. You're going to hunger for it. And you're going to run after it, and he's going to be good and faithful to give it to you in his timing. The second one is God's going to call you into some kind of service. He's going to tell you that Christianity is not a passive thing, that you're not to, to continue in the sin of a consumeristic mindset of the church. The church is not a place that you come and take, come and take, come and take. It's a place that you come and give, and you give, and you give. And I don't mean just financially. I mean all of it. God has called us to serve one another, to be engaged in this beautiful act of worship that is called service. He will call you to serve. And then thirdly, he will call you to bring that message to sinners who do not know Christ. He will tell you to find people who don't know him, to hang out with them who don't know him, to invite them into your home, to invite them out to dinner, to serve them, to wash their feet. Some of you know, several years ago, I went and removed a big, huge berm, that big winter we had, of my neighbor's yard. or his driveway. He was gone. Huge berm, 20 feet tall. Garganger. I'm exaggerating. It was big. Service. And can I just share with you, because, because I'm just an honest guy, and I. you get what you get. You will not find the kind of peace that you're looking for until you engage in all three levels. And this is not a works-based thing. This is a relational thing. This is what it looks like to be in a relationship with God. If I come to my wife and say, I want to have a nice, intimate relationship with you, but we've got to do it my way. So here's what we're going to do. You're going to watch football with me every Sunday. She's here in the room, so we're just going to make this deal right now. You're going to watch football with me every Sunday, right? Uh, We're going to sit on the couch, but we're not going to talk because that makes me tired. So we're just going to sit there because I feel close to you when you're in the room. Cool? And and the kids, what they're going to do, they're going to stay upstairs in their room and they're going to play toys quietly. Is this going to work? So There's a couple other women here who are like, built like me. They're like, that sounds awesome. It's not going to work. And if she came to me in the reverse, she likes to dance. She says, she has asked me to do this before. Let's go salsa dancing. I'm like, no. I have danced with her. Don't go, ah, oh, don't feel sorry for her. This isn't what it's about. My, my, what I'm trying to help you understand is that in a, in a human relationship, there's going to be some give and take. The difference is both of us are sinners. So there's, it's not a perfect deal. Like she can't be the superior throne one because she's not perfect. She's a sinner, and I can't either. So there has to be compromise. But in a relationship with God, we have an inerrant, perfect God. His way is completely perfect. He says, you want to have a good relationship? Quit dictating to me what that looks like. That doesn't make me God. That makes you God. I'm God. I know it's best. Here's your best life. You want to know what it's going to look like? It looks like this. Some of those things I just shared. Sit with me. Be with me. Study my word that I can speak to you. Put yourself in a position where I can mold you and shape you into my image. Serve my people because I told you when I washed feet, didn't I? This was an example for you to follow. And also go out into the entire world and teach them what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Share with the sinful world. Be a friend of sinners. And the peace of God will surpass your heart. This is what it looks like to be in right relationship. And I'm going to keep dragging you into the ocean until you get it. And to that we say, thank you God that you love me enough to drown my selfishness out of me. That my lungs will declare that you're good. And your ways are higher than my ways. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, there is a recognition for us of how imperfect, Lord, the church is, filled with people who do not always worship you as they ought, filled with pastors who do not preach the word as well as they should, myself included. And yet, it is through this great foolishness that you choose to confound the world and you still choose to bring people to yourself. I ask you, Father, to truly give us the power necessary. Lord, you've given us the great gift of the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete, to empower us, Lord, to do those things which you've called us to do. None of us, Lord, are without excuse. All of us have been given the great gift. Which makes me mindful of even that statement, all of us, Lord. As I know in the first service and quite possibly here, there are people in the room who have not yet declared to be in a right relationship with you. And in this passage, Lord, in Jonah, we see that there has been a great mess amongst the people. You send an imperfect messenger with a perfect message to bring people to yourself. And I pray that, Lord, this morning for those who may not know you, that they would believe, Lord, that their response would be belief, that they would call upon the God of the heaven and the God of the sea and the God of the dry land, and they would come into right relationship with you. That they would turn away from their own selfish lifestyle, a cultural lifestyle of popularity, and turn instead to the lifestyle of service, sitting in ashes, Lord, to be with you. Because to be in ashes with you is so much greater to be on a throne without you. Give us the eyes necessary, Lord. We are desperate for your help. We are desperate for your illuminating work that you bring through your word. We need you so deeply, God, that even our words fail to declare it well. And as we sing, may it be a moment for us to together, Lord, as a whole, as a family, as a body, as a congregation, to ask for your help and your empowerment, both in our individual lives and our individual sins, as well as for what we are to do corporately as a whole. We trust you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.